Good morning. Hey, guess what next weekend is? Baptism weekend. Yeah. It's the first one of the year, and uh, thank you, Jake. If you hear the excitement, uh, that's because it's one of the most exciting things we do here every month. Um, if you haven't been to a service where we do baptisms, you have to come next weekend. Um, it is a celebration of these people publicly declaring Jesus as their Lord. And uh, if you haven't signed up and you'd like to sign up to be baptized next week, we have sign-ups out by the tent, outside afterward. We'd love to help you take that, uh, that next step. If you're new with us, uh, we are at the tail end of a message series that we are calling uh, Real Change Resolutions, and we've been looking at how to see lasting change in your life. How do you see, why is it that so many people try to make changes in their life, and then years later, those changes didn't stick? And then for some people, they did. And there's actually things in there that we can learn from, uh, from his word, and one of the thoughts that we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks is that everybody in this room has similar goals in some ways. You know, I, I don't think there's a person in this room who probably doesn't want to be healthier this year than they were last year. It might be hard, but at least we want that. You know, I, I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't want closer relationships or a stronger marriage or, or to be a better parent if you have kids. I don't think there's anybody in this room, you know, that, that is saying, you know, by this time next year, I, I hope I'm a raging alcoholic. You know, I, I don't think that's like a goal that you set. It happens for some people. That doesn't mean that it's something that you desire. Uh, I think that uh, nobody in this room is saying, you know, I hope by this time next year I'm, I'm thousands of dollars more in debt than I am this year. I don't think that's a thing. Uh, let's not be so dramatic. Let's, let's kind of tone it down a little bit. I don't know anybody who says, you know, I, I hope that this whole year I work at a job that I hate and uh, I live a passionless life and I just, you know, I get to the end and I wish that there was no regrets. I don't think anybody wants to end up in that place. And what's, what's crazy to me when I think about it is, there's almost nobody who ruins their life in one moment. Now, it happens occasionally, okay, I, I'll, I'll admit that, but it's very rare. There's hardly anybody that walks down a path of destruction and ends up in a, in a very damaging place to their life by one choice or one decision or one day. And, uh, and it, you know, but the vast majority, it, it happens uh, over the course of their life, year after year of choices that add up to that. And so, you know, they typically, a lot of people who end up in a place um, that's difficult will summarize their life or someone else will speak about the situation they're in with one sentence. And I don't think that's fair um, or accurate. You know, you, you, you hear a one-sentence summary sometimes of where somebody's ended up in their life. For example, somebody's talking about this, this particular woman and says, well, you know, she just totally fell into sin last week and cheated on her husband, and now they're getting a divorce. You know, I, I don't think that, that's an accurate summary of what happened. I think that if you really were to look at it, you can see a series of decisions that were made over the course of years that led to that point. I don't think that you can, uh, you know, that you can say that it happened. This person is, is, is so unhealthy. Um, I, I don't think you can typically, for the most part, say that it happened just like that. I know sometimes, but it's, it's a rare thing. And I like to read the Bible and look for those summaries because they're all throughout. And you can find all these places where they give a one sentence that kind of summarizes what's now happened. But if you really look at it, there's more that led to that point than that sentence describes. For example, one of the more profound ones is found way back in the book of Judges, if you want to follow along, chapter 16, verse 1. And it summarizes what became kind of a, a bad decision, but culminated after a series of bad decisions for this guy, Samson. Most of you who, who know a little bit about the Bible, you know the character of Samson. 
And uh, if there was any guy that was born with this incredible potential for God, this incredible strength that could be used, it was Samson. You know, Samson, if you, if you read his story, he was the guy that would, that would win every Spartan race. He was the guy that he had this amazing strength that was given to him by God to make a difference. And he ended up in a life, though, that completely fell apart. So if you read, there's a summary sentence in verse 1. It says, one day, everybody say one day. One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. Okay, one sentence summarizes the beginning of a downward trajectory of where the path that he's now walking down, this life that was incredibly gifted by God is now going in a different direction. One day, Samson went down to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. So you might not know the geography, but I do. Let me tell you a little bit about the geography here. Gaza is 25 miles from Samson's hometown of Zorah. Gaza, at that time in history, was a Philistine headquarters, and Samson was the guy where if he walked into their land and they saw him there, he would be considered like public enemy number one. Okay, they'd be after him, they'd want to kill him. He was the guy they hated most. And, uh, and so in order to get to Gaza was to put this man's life at risk, and he knew that. So what we know about the time where Samson lived is there was no taxi, there was no Uber, there were no trains. Uh, so chances are he most likely walked from his hometown to Gaza, 25 miles into enemy territory, it says, to see a prostitute. Okay, I'll come back to that in a second. So the question is, how many people, really, because this sounds ridiculous, how many people would walk 25 miles into a place that could kill you just to get a little squeeze? <laughs> I might have not should have said that part. Like, some of you would rather I say, to get a little... You know, to get a little hubba hubba, whatever, whatever you want me to say. I don't know what you want me to say, but whatever you want to call it, who does that? 25 miles in enemy territory for that. And here's the honest answer, guys. The honest answer is people do it every single day, metaphorically speaking. And, you know, since I only work on Sundays and have nothing to do during the week, yeah, right, <laughs> I decided to look at this. How long does it take to go 25 miles? How many steps do you have to take? To go 25 miles, you have to walk approximately 20, or excuse me, 56,250 steps. Okay? So I would submit to you this morning that Samson did not ruin his life all at once. Samson had to take 56,250 steps in the wrong direction that would begin a downward spiral that would lead to the destruction of his life. That's a lot of steps. The point is, most of us don't wreck our lives all at once. It's a rare thing when that happens. How do we do it? We do it one bad decision, one sin, one wrong step at a time, one day at a time. And that's why we're talking about disciplines in this series. We're talking about habits that we form, small changes that we make in our life, but that we make on a consistent basis so that years down the road, we actually see real change. And so if you were with us uh, the first week, we started off with the idea that rather than just naming all these New Year's resolutions, which are not a bad thing, first we need to ask God the question, who do you want me to become this year? Who is it that I'm supposed to be this year? By the end of the year, who am I supposed to be? And if you don't make that decision first, then the change that you're trying to make in your life is just not going to last because it's not tied to your identity and who you are. So who do you want to be? Who does God want me to be? Um, a godly father, a mother who, who loves her children, you know, a better parent, a great example to the students I go to school with or the people I work with, uh, a person who's healthy, a person who's generous. Who does God want me to be? Maybe someone who's sober and clean, 
Who do you want to be? The second week, last week, just refresher, we asked the question, based on who you want to become and who God wants you to become, what's one discipline that you need to implement into your life? Just one. That if you do on a consistent basis this entire year, it will actually lead you down the path and help you progress toward who you're supposed to be in Christ. So today I'm going to add one more practical layer to that. And all that, all that is is this. Here's the question and the application. So based on who you want to become, who God's leading you to be, what's one bad thing in your life that you need to break? Because I get that question more than the other, ha- the other question. I wish I got the other question. I don't have a lot of people sitting across from me in my office asking, how do I form a better habit in my life? But I have a lot of people that sit across from me and ask, how do I break this bad habit in my life? How do I break away from this sin that no matter how many times I try to get away from it, I keep going back to again and again and again. How do I, how do I finally seal the deal and knock that out? How do I break it? How do I change that thing permanently about my life? I like what James said about bad habits. In James 1 verse 21, he said, get rid of them all. He said, get rid of every filthy habit and all wicked conduct. But you're not going to do it on your own. Watch what you're going to do. You're going to submit yourself to God and accept the word that he plants in your hearts, which is able to save you. So the question this weekend is, what is one bad habit or sin that you need to break that's preventing you from going down the path that God would have you go this year and becoming who you need to be? It's an important question to ask. So today we're going to talk about how to break those habits in our life. Now before we talk about how, we have to talk about what. So a little bit of this today, if you were to sit down with a pastor who's trained in this or with a biblical counselor or something like that, this is what we would share with you the first day that you come to us to try to. So I'm saving a lot of you a lot of time. Okay, so pay attention. Lean in. So first thing you need to do is acknowledge what that thing is in your life. You have to define it. You have to admit that there's an issue there. If you're not willing to acknowledge that there's a problem, you're not going to be able to attack it head on. Okay, and that's, this is the biggest thing I see on a consistent basis is that people have a difficult time sometimes admitting that they have a problem or that there is a sin or that there is something that they need help with that they can't do on their own, and so they never get through it. They never break it. So, uh, and by the way, I'm only asking, I'm challenging you to think of one because some of you are going to say, well, I have 35. You know, well, that's, that's fine, and, and many of us do, but if you try to break 35 this year, you're not going to do one. Trust me, from experience, I'm challenging you to do one and start there, start small. So let me just get your wheels turning a little bit. For some of you, um, maybe you have a bad attitude, or or maybe some of us have a complaining heart. You know, maybe some of us have a maybe some of us have the sin of um, of uh, of filling out one of these and not putting our name on it. That's a sin. (laughs) Let me explain. This particular one, no name from last week. I can't stand the songs you sung this week. Let me show you what happens to those, by the way. Just in case you didn't know, I just want to share that with you, okay? Because that's, that's not what those are for. Those are not for complaints. I just want to point that out. Those are to give feedback, but if you want to give biblical feedback, that's not how we do things around here, you've got to put your name on it so we can have a conversation. Another tip for a few of you, I don't know who you are, but is if you put a question on the card or ask for something to be given to you or shared with you and you don't put a name, we don't have a way to answer that, which really means you're not actually wanting the answer, you just want to take a jab, right? Okay, just throwing that out there. So maybe you need to break that sin. Um, maybe you have a gossiping tongue. And I, I, know, I know for some of you it's not gossip. You're only telling her her business so she can help you pray for her. I know that's how some of you think about it, but it's still gossip and it's still sin. 
what is the thing you need to break? It could be a, a health issue. Um, it could be a technology addiction. Maybe you're addicted to video games or social media. Maybe some of you are so addicted to your mobile device that you can't hand it to somebody else for five minutes without getting an anxiety attack. That's a problem. Um, maybe for some of you it's a substance that you're addicted to, uh, prescription meds or illegal something or alcohol or nicotine, whatever it might be for you that you're trying to break. I don't know what it is. But first, let me tell you something that I embraced a long time ago that completely changed my life and how I make changes in my life. And honestly, from a pastoral perspective, this is something that very few people have actually embraced yet in their life and everybody needs to. If more than one person who love you tell you that you have a problem in an area of your life, you most likely have a problem. Let me say that again, because not a lot of people like to hear that, but it's still true. If more than one person who genuinely care about you tell you you have a problem in an area of your life, you have a problem. And a lot of us, what we do is when somebody tells us we have a problem or we need to make a change, we get offended and we walk away, we cut off the relationship, we stop talking to the person, which means you're never going to make any good changes. And you know, Jesus did this, so we should allow others to do it as well because it's the biblical thing to do. There's supposed to be truth and love in our communication. It's not one or the other, it's both. And sometimes, guys, the most loving thing that somebody can do for you is tell you you have a problem. The people that have loved me enough to tell me I had an issue in my life are the people I care the most about because they helped me change my life. I've grown more from that than from anything else. It's an important thing to learn how to do. So the one that I'm kind of trying to break this year is my screen time. I've looked it up. I do less than the average of most people, okay? But still, I'm a math guy. When I add that up, how many minutes I spend on that in a day looking at a screen, and I add that up, and I think about if I invested that in my marriage or my kids or the church and instead of into a screen, I think about the changes that God can make. And it's an incredible, incredible missed opportunity. So based on who you want to become, this is the question, what habit in your life do you need to break and walk away from completely? So... Before we get into the practical part, let's talk for just a minute about why it's so difficult to break a bad habit. Would you admit it's very hard to get rid of a bad habit? It's a very difficult thing. And this will give us some insight into how to do it. So the first thing I want to point out is, have you noticed that there's a difference between the process of how difficult it is to start a good habit in your life and then the process of how difficult it is to stop a bad habit in your life. They're connected, but they're a little different. So for example, um, some of you have told me that you want to become a runner this year, which I don't know why any sane person would want to do that, but that's just not my thing. But it's a, it's a healthy thing. So if you say, I want to be a runner, then you might say, all right, I'm going to hit the alarm clock for tomorrow at 5 a.m. or whatever it is. I'm going to get up. Oh, I'm so tired, but I got up anyway. I put my running gear on. I'm ready to go. I'm going to be a runner this year. You go outside. It's cold, and you want to go back in and crawl under the covers. It's just a difficult thing. It's hard to do that. It's hard to form that habit. See, it's very hard in the beginning of a habit or a discipline, but then if you do it consistently long enough, let's say it's six months down the road, you've been running, Now all of a sudden this thing happens where you realize, oh shoot, it took six months, but I'm down 10 pounds. Look, I have what's starting to resemble buns of steel or whatever it is for you. And all of a sudden you see the result, but it happened way down the road. It was very difficult to discipline yourself and implement it at first, but then in the future there's a win, there's a benefit that keeps it going. Okay, breaking a bad habit is similar but a little different because here's what happens with breaking a bad habit. It's the opposite. There's a perceived win or benefit immediately with a sin or a bad habit. But then down the road, instead of the win, you realize that you've lost something dear. 
you realize that it's cost you more than you were willing to give. In other words, there's a perceived benefit to sin sometimes. Sometimes it's fun to do the wrong thing at first. Can we be that real here? Right? How many of you, by show fans, would say, sin can be fun in the moment? And those of you that aren't raising your hand, you're either lying or you haven't done it right. Okay? It's a true statement. The Bible even says it. Sin in the fleeting moment, in the immediate, it can be fun. That's why we do it. There's a perceived benefit to it to us. But then you realize once you've been doing it long enough, it comes back to haunt you. It attacks you. You realize you've lost more than you should have ever had to give because it takes you out. That's how a bad habit works. There's a perceived benefit. The negative payoff, unfortunately, isn't sometimes till the future. And so by that time, you've already destroyed your life. For example, I'm just going to pick a a, a small one, okay? An unhealthy habit. Let's say that you want to smoke a cigarette. Perceived benefit. Right now, it feels good. It relaxes me. Okay? Perceived benefit. But you're not thinking about 20, 30 years down the road when you sit down with the person who tells you, um, your lungs are shot, you have two months to live. And I've sat with people who had that news given to them. You see, there's a perceived benefit right now, years down the road. It doesn't come till later. It's too late at that point. You see, you drink a two liter of soda every single day. You're the customer of the year. <laughs> it's so good for a while. Mmm, it's good. Trust me, I know. Decades later, your teeth start falling out. You have type 2 diabetes. See, there's a perceived benefit now, but down the road, it can cost you something that you don't realize till later. And so understanding this, guys, helps us to understand how we can break a bad habit. So if a good habit is difficult to implement at first, and then you see the results later, a bad habit is easy to do at first, and then you see the problem later, you got to flip the solution on its head. So last week we talked about if you want to form a good habit, if you want to put a godly discipline into your life or a healthy discipline, you have to set it up where it's easier for you to do and it's really clear how to do it every day. Okay? Like for example, I gave you the example, if you want to read your Bible every morning, leave it open to the part you want to read on the dining room table or wherever you want to read it so when you get up in the morning you see it there, it triggers you to read it. Okay? It makes it easier to do that discipline. You got to flip that to break a bad habit. Here, write this down if you're taking notes. You have to make it hard to do, okay? So whatever that bad habit or that sin is, you need to flip that model on its head and say, I'm going to try to make this as hard as possible for me to actually engage. That's the solution. Because we only have so much willpower. I just want to throw that out there because this is a concept that a lot of people don't understand. They think, well, I'm just going to fight this sin with my willpower. You don't have infinite willpower. I don't know if you've realized that yet. You might think you do, but you don't. The people that think they're going to fight against sin simply by their own willpower are usually the ones that fall the hardest and the fastest into the sin. It's the ones who make it harder for themselves to engage those particular sins that actually stand up against them, not the ones who think they have the most willpower. Willpower is not infinite. It's kind of like energy. You only have so much energy every day, and once you deplete it, you don't have any more. It's like, for me, it's like making decisions. I don't know if you're the same way, but I can make decisions all day long, and then at the end of the day, my decision-making ability is shot. You ask me to make a decision, I'm going to tell you to make it. I can't make it at that point. It's gone. It's the same thing with willpower. If you fight against something with your willpower too, fa- too long, eventually your willpower runs out. You don't have any willpower left. You're going to fall into the temptation. And so I don't know what it might be for you, but maybe you're, maybe you're trying to... Um, I'm just going to use a silly example, okay? I don't think it's a sin to eat donuts. I love donuts, but this is going to paint the picture for you. So just relate it to actual sins, okay? So let's say that you're trying to quit eating donuts, and then you show up to the office on Monday morning, and somebody brought your favorite ones and put them right there with the lid open in the beautiful pink box. 
I'm kind of an addict. So, so the first time, this is what the willpower people do. You walk by the donuts, you take a look at them. I have willpower. I'm not going to eat one. I'm a disciplined person. My willpower, I'm going to stand against that sin, right? So then you find yourself getting up from your desk, like subconsciously. You walk by them again. This time you just smell them. You're like, see that? I'm smelling that which I cannot have, and I'm still not touching them. I have willpower. You walk by them again on your way to the bathroom. This time, you know, it's not a sin if I lick the chocolate off the top of one, right? Put it back. <laughs> by the time you keep doing that, your willpower eventually is depleted. Now you're, you've eaten two. See? You cross the line at that point. And you can, you, 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 so you, you lost your donut virginity or whatever. So <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Am I the only person that has a hard time walking by the donuts? a serious problem. So what we're going to do is we're going to make it difficult. So I love the way Solomon phrased it in Proverbs 4 verse 14 about anything that's tempting, okay, anything that's evil, anything that draws you toward a path that you shouldn't be on. Here's what he says. Do not set foot on the path to the donuts. No. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. And then he says this. Listen to how he says this. He says, avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn from it. Go your own way. In other words, I'm not going to just say it one time. I'm going to give you four different things to do because it's that serious that you not even go near it. Because this is what a lot of us do as Christians. We think, well, I'm not going to engage in that sin, but, you know, I'm going to walk up to the line. I'm going to do this with the line of whatever that sin is, you know. And, and, and so we think, well, I'm going to avoid that sin. It's okay for me to be in the backseat of the car late at night or whatever. I'm not going to cross the line. Well, then you cross it because you flirted with it. You see? So you do all these things. You, you lean against the door. Well, I'm not going to open the door and go in. I'm just going to lean on the door. You know what I mean? So we get what Paul is saying here. What, it's not Paul. What Proverbs is saying here, avoid it. Don't travel on it. Don't get near it. Don't even come close to the line. He's saying run from the line because your willpower is not strong enough. If you were with us last week, we talked about this concept that's said different ways in a lot of different books and, and, and counseling sessions. We use this a lot as well, but let me show you this picture again. This is what we call the habit loop. So research shows, again, that every bad habit in our life starts with a trigger, okay? Something that says, oh, this is what you need to do. Oh, this is what you want. This is what you want to do. There's a trigger, okay? And that leads to an action that's followed by the reward, okay? The high, the buzz, the pat on the back, whatever it is for you that rewards that cycle and then it happens over and over and over again. Trigger, action, reward, it becomes a cycle. So then the question today, if we're trying to remove sins or bad habits from our life, is how do we break that cycle? How do we stop that? Because it's a vicious thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to remove the trigger and interrupt the action before it ever happens. Okay? So you talk about, biblically speaking, walking away from sin, not engaging in the sin, saying no to the sin, repenting, right? This is the process. You have to sometimes remove the trigger because you're not always going to have the willpower. So let's talk about triggers for a minute because we can be triggered to sin or to, to have a bad action in our life by all kinds of unhelpful things, right? But studies show that there's five major triggers that generally lead us down that path in a wrong direction. Let me share, share you with them. These are going to resonate with, with most of you, okay? You can be triggered by a place, you can be triggered by a time. You might be triggered by a certain mood that you're in, by a moment that occurs, or you might be triggered by people, okay? Place, 
time, mood, moment, people. So let me run through those just practically for you real quick so these hit home. So let's talk about place and time together because they kind of go together. There's probably a place where you do the bad habit or the sin most of the times when you do it. There's also probably a place where you don't do that bad habit or that sin, okay? For example, you probably don't eat a Big Mac and have a giant Coke while you're at the gym. That's not the place that you do that. I'm just giving you examples. You probably don't uh, smoke pot while you come to church, okay? Uh, you probably, and if you do, we need to have a conversation about your spiritual development and how you're supposed to operate in the house of the Lord. So it's a place, but there's also a time, okay? There's a time. So you, you, if you struggle with, for example, pornography, you probably don't look at pornography during the daytime. It's probably a specific time that you do that, like late at night after a fight with your spouse or late at night when you're feeling lonely or bored. There's a time and a place. Time and place really matter a lot when you're trying to fight against sins and trying to eliminate habits from your life. So you need to remove those triggers. I'm going to give you a biblical example of that one. So David in the Old Testament, if you know his story, he made a horrible mistake. And if you don't know the story, he committed adultery, he slept with a woman who was married, and then, to top it all off, he sends this woman's husband who was a soldier to the front lines to be killed in battle to cover up the sin that he committed. Okay? Horrible, horrible choice. And if you really want to sum it up, though, and you look at the life of David, the Bible doesn't really talk about him as this horrible person, although those were horrible decisions. He's called a man that loved God. He genuinely loved God. Here's what I'm trying to say. You can genuinely love God and be committed to and, and, and firmly believe that you're not going to engage in certain things or make certain choices and then still fall into the rut. So that means that loving God isn't enough to keep you from those things necessarily. There has to be something else that you implement. And so David's horrible mistake in the Old Testament, guys, can be summarized by one sentence. Wrong place, wrong time. Let me explain that. He genuinely loved God. He was committed to serve God. But if you read the story, <coughs> and if you don't know it, David the king, he loved God, um, but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The beginning of the story says, in the springtime... When kings go off to war, David stayed back at the palace. So where David, the king at that time in history, was supposed to be, he didn't go there. He, he remained back in the palace instead of going where he was supposed to be. So when he wasn't where he was supposed to be, he ended up at the wrong time going up on his roof, which also happened to be the time that his neighbor was out taking a bath on her roof. Okay? He looked. He saw. He made the wrong choice. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time led him to see something he shouldn't have seen, which led him to do something he shouldn't have done, which ended up, by the way, costing him more than he ever wanted to give. So here's what I'm saying. If there's a consistent place or a consistent time that you find yourself engaging in certain of those things, you have to remove those triggers to help yourself have the, the power to avoid those things. So those are moments where you're vulnerable, in other words, avoid those places and those times. There's also the next one, moods. Moods, you know it. Um, you're more vulner vulnerable when you're in certain moods. So in counseling, they teach you this concept called HALT. H-A-L-T, HALT. So you're most vulnerable to make a bad choice when you're H, hungry, when you're A, angry. My wife doesn't think those are separate words for me. I just get hangry, and it's true. 
the L is lonely or bored. And then the T is um, tired. When you're tired, you're more vulnerable to make bad choices. And so, uh, you know, you have less strength. And so you have to halt sometimes and say, oh, wait, I'm in that place, or it's that time, or I'm in that mood. You have to halt and say, I need to think very carefully before I commit an action, before something comes out of my mouth, before I do something that's going to lead me down the wrong path. That's what you have to consciously do. There's moments. That's the next one. There's certain moments uh, where something happens. And after that particular moment, you end up doing the very thing that you didn't want to do. Uh, something happens. A moment triggers you. So for example, uh, you get in a fight with your husband. And then because of that moment, you do the same thing you do after every one of those moments. You call the same three girlfriends to have a husband bashing session, which is not a biblical thing to do. Um, it's a moment that triggers you to do something wrong. You pass your test in school, so you go smoke pot to celebrate. Or you don't pass your test in school, so you go smoke pot to console yourself. Or you just skip the test and go smoke pot. Or whatever it is that you do. But you have to look for the moments that trigger you, and you're going to distance yourself from the time, the place, the mood, and the moment that triggers you to make those bad choices. Okay? Okay, this last one, it's going to hurt some feelings. But at Rise Church, we speak truth even when it stings. Just like Jesus, by the way. And it's because we love you. That's, for some of you, the biggest trigger for you is people. It's people. The wrong people can trigger us to walk in the wrong direction, just like the right people surrounding us can trigger us to walk in the right direction. It works both ways. In fact, studies are very clear on this, that the closer you are to someone, the more likely you are to have the same habits as the people close to you. There's a lot of studies on this that show that up to 75% of the people that hang around people with certain habits adopt those habits, whether good or bad. 75%. That's a pretty big return. And by the way, it doesn't take a study to prove this, though. Uh, long before there were any studies, Solomon said it with all the wisdom in Proverbs. Chapter 13, verse 20, he said, If you walk with the wise, you become wise. But the companion of fools suffers harm. We become like the people we run around with. If I can tell you about my closest friends, guys, they are gifts to me. You look at my, my closest friends, a handful of friends, and what you're going to find is every single one of them loves Jesus. Every single one of them is actively serving God within their local church family, whether it's this one or another one. They're all leaders of some kind that are thriving in some area of their life. They all try to live beneath their means. They like to be generous. They all work on their marriages and try to have better marriages. They all try to raise their kids to follow Christ when they grow older. Think about how much easier it is for me to live a life that honors God when those are the people that I'm around the most. See? Think about the flip side. If my five closest friends, and I do have some friends, by the way, that fall into this category, but they're not the closest friends. Does that make sense? I'm not telling you to not have friends that... that that, that are not just like you. That's ridiculous. That's not even Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's a big difference between the friends who are in your inner circle who speak wisdom into your life, the ones who are your spiritual partners, and the ones who you maybe invest yourself into. You see, there's a difference between those two things. So I have friends in this category, but they don't support me spiritually. That's not their purpose, okay? So imagine that my, my five closest friends um, were all unemployed, addicted to video games, they all live in their mother's basement, um, 
they all had other addiction problems in their life, and then every Friday night, they invite me to go out to a place where the majority of people in that place are getting drunk, and their purpose there is to bring someone of the opposite sex home with them that night. Am I going to have a much more difficult time honoring God with my life if those are my five closest friends? This is one of the most common things, if I could just go off for a second, that I hear from young single people in the church. Man, Jared, like, I've been praying for so long for the right guy to come along or the right girl to come along. And the first question I ask is exactly this. I say, well, what places do you put yourself in? Like, where are you meeting the wrong ones? And when their answer is at the bar or at the club, that's the problem. Wrong place, wrong time. And you can throw out the, the excuses all you want. Like, well, I, I just like dancing. I go there with my girlfriends to dance. Like, that's the only reason I do it. It's not to meet anybody. Yeah, but if that's the place you meet Mr. Wrong every single time you go, that's still wrong place, wrong time. You see what I'm saying? You remove yourself from the wrong place in the wrong time if that's where you're always meeting. And by the way, the, 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 the guy or girl you're praying to meet isn't going to the wrong place, wrong time at the moment. So you're not going to meet them there. You see what I'm saying? So you got to think about those things. Um, that's why it's almost impossible to live the right life if you have the wrong friends. Those closest to you matter a lot. They influence people. Again, disclaimer, it doesn't mean that you're not a light to people, to all people. It doesn't mean you don't love all people, invest in all people, spend time with all people. Jesus certainly did, okay? But those closest to you who have influence over you, you need to pick them carefully. Paul said it very clearly. He didn't sugarcoat it. He said, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. That means you can have amazing character. If you always keep the bad company, it's going to corrupt your character. <clears throat> you become like the people you spend the most time with. And so I'll just say one more thing on it, just a little more blunt. If you consistently find yourself in your life going in the wrong direction or coming up against a wall or, or engaging in things that you wish you wouldn't, one of the first questions many of us need to ask is, who are my closest friends and are they helping me walk down the road I want to walk down or down that road? It could be the sole problem. Remove that trigger, you're good to go. So what are we going to do? We're going to look at the triggers to interrupt those actions. So how would this play out? Let me just get real practical for a minute. Um, so for, this is going to be, a, again, a simple one, but you can use the same method for the bigger things. So uh, one of you this week told me that one of your things this year is you want to make sure you don't hit the snooze button anymore, so you waste less of, less of your day. Okay, great. Great goal. Um, but you telling me that and writing that down means absolutely nothing because what you're saying is, well, I'm going to do it by my willpower. So you have to remove the triggers first. So if you want to do that, instead of just saying, I'm going to not hit the snooze button tomorrow, take your mobile device or your clock or whatever you use, put it across the room. Now when it goes off in the morning, you have to get out of the warm bed, walk across the cold room, turn it off, go all the way back, get back under the sheets in order to fail. <laughs> okay? You see, you're making it harder. You're making it more difficult to do the bad habit. So whatever that is for you. Um, if you have a problem, uh, I don't know, shopping too much on Amazon, like click, 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 oh shoot, there goes 300 bucks, you know? So first of all, Turn off the feature that says buy now. That's a horrible feature, okay? Secondly, some people may even need to take it so far as to say, you know what, I have a close friend. I'm going to give you my password, and I can't buy anything without you knowing. If that's what it takes, if that's what it takes to not constantly be in debt, that might be the answer. You remove the trigger. Let's get a little more serious. Let's say that 
you consistently find yourself staring at sexy images every chance you can and lusting even after you've promised again and again not to do it and you've said you're going to stop again and again because it's going to affect you and the people you care about most whether you realize it or not down the road. What are you going to do? You need to make it harder to look at those. So did you know that they call these things smartphones for a reason? It's because they have a lot of smart features on them today that technology affords you. My phone has features on it because it's smart where you can set it where I can't even access certain apps. And I use that, by the way. And by the way, it's not because I think that tomorrow I'm going to even be tempted necessarily to look at something. It's because I know that anybody, including me, can be in a vulnerable place, time, moment, or mood. And if I'm in that moment, I don't even want to have access to the thing that's going to lead me down the wrong path. So I have certain apps on my phone that I can't even download or access without somebody else who knows the code giving it to me first. Some of you say, well, you took it too far. Yeah, but I, know I don't stumble in that area, though. And some of you that don't take those steps do. Sometimes you have to make it very hard to access the things that you don't want to access. If you have a drinking problem, don't keep any in the house would be your first step. I know that sounds so simple, but that's the first step. You don't keep it in the cabinet and say, and say by willpower, I'm not going to touch it. You have to remove the triggers as far as you can. He says, avoid it. Go as far as you can from it. How do you break a habit? You make it hard to do. And then here's another little quick piece. A lot of times in the Christian life, a lot of people are constantly trying to avoid this sin, break this sin, get away from this sin, stop doing that sin. And you're not actually, it's all about don'ts. You've got to also focus on the do's. You have to look at what are you replacing the bad habits with, the things that bring fruit to your life, the things that give you life abundantly, the things that honor God. Those are the things that give you the drive and the energy to keep going because they fill you up so much more than the other things. So, last thing I want to say. If I can talk to some of you just for a minute that you're struggling with an addiction, you have a habit you can't seem to break, you can see it starting to have collateral damage. It's a serious thing and you're realizing that. If you told yourself and others last year that you were going to stop that, and it hasn't been healed by this year, might I suggest that that means this year you need to do something far more significant than you did last year to change it. For some of you, it might be as far as me saying, you need rehab. And that's not a maybe, it's a you need rehab. Okay? And I don't know who you are or what that is, but something significant has to happen sometimes before you can stop some of these habits. Because the habits you have today will shape who you become tomorrow. They are leading you down a path. The disciplines in your life are leading you somewhere and shaping who you're going to become. And so if you want to know where you're, where you're going to end up, because remember, you can't see it until later sometimes, just pull out your remote and push fast forward. That sounds cheesy, but I'm serious. Push fast forward. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road, if I continue doing whatever this thing is, let me imagine for a minute where I might be. And some of you might say, I had no idea years ago what this would cost me. I never knew I could lose so much. I would give anything to go back and redo it. This relationship's broken. That relationship's broken. It feels like it can't be patched now. I never expected to lose this or lose that. And you know what? If I look at it, I didn't do it all at once. It was one small habit and one small choice over time in the totality of years that led me to this place. I could have broken it if I listened that day. Think about that. And some of you are going to say, well, man, thinking about this, I feel so weak. Good. 
Because it's in your weakness that Christ's strength is made strongest. And until you're willing to admit that you cannot do it by your own willpower, it's only through Christ and his Holy Spirit residing in you that you even have the remote strength to do it. Only then will you be able to beat it. It's the number one thing. When you are weak, Christ is made perfect, it says. Think about Samson. 56,250 steps in the wrong direction. It was also 56,250 opportunities to stop and turn around to say, this isn't who I want to become. This isn't the life I want. God created me for something more. Okay, last verse. Zechariah says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. Okay? Don't despise those small choices. Don't despise being faithful in the small things and then expecting God to trust you with bigger things. Sometimes God doesn't trust us with bigger healing or bigger relationships or bigger things because we haven't yet been trustworthy in the smaller things he sent our way. We have to focus on that. And then here's the part I love that we just glance over sometimes. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. The Lord does what? Rejoices. Okay, so imagine this. My little boy Lincoln, he's like that tall. He's never made a basket in his life. Say we're playing at the park tomorrow. And I look over and all of a sudden he just grabs that ball, shoots it, and sinks it. What do you think I'm going to do? Rejoice. I'm going to run over, pick him up, get excited, celebrate. It's going to be the best thing ever. It's a stupid little choice he made that worked. It was a stupid little good thing. But I'm going to rejoice about that. One small moment tonight of him obeying his mother. I'm rejoicing. <laughs> One small choice. I'm going to celebrate that and, and encourage that and speak life into that. So in the same way, imagine your father in heaven rejoicing every time his child makes one good choice. Every time his child adopts one good habit or breaks one bad one. Way to go, son. Way to go, daughter. You're right on track. Keep going that way. Keep going that way. And see, now you're being conformed into the image of my will and the image of my son. And then when you start to do these small things, they're, they're redefining your identity. You're becoming who God always wanted you to be. And you realize that eventually as you do it again and again and again, Jesus dwells within me. I am a child of God. I am more than a conqueror. I do have peace. I am a comforter. I am healthy. Christ in me is stronger than the desires in me, no matter how bad they are. I'm a self-disciplined, mountain-moving, devil-kicking man of God, or whatever it is for you. And some of you need to get a little excited about that because it's going to help you if you do. It's your, it's your story. And in other words, I used to be here, but now I'm here. I used to be this man, now I'm this man. It redefines your identity. That's what Christ does. So Father, would you work in the lives of your people? God, would you speak through your word today? Would you do what only you can do? As you reflect in prayer, guys, I don't even want you to think about it. I just want you to ask God. You're just going to seek God. God, what, what habit do you want me to break this year? What sin do I need to let go of? What, what bad choice that I keep making consistently over and over again do I need to remove from my life? Talk about it with people who care about you. Pray about it. And then commit to do it.
God, I thank you that you're going to speak to people in real ways. Even small ways, God. Ways that these little things in our life may not seem very significant now, but over a totality of time, whether they're good or bad practices, they do lead down one path or the other. And so, God, we want to change because you've called us to change. We want to add the disciplines in our life that you've called us to add. We're going to break the ones you've called us to break. And then every year, consistently, regularly, little by little by little, as we get to know you, your word, your people, the gifts you put within us, you're going to conform us to be more like your son, Jesus. God, I thank you that you're going to help us, that we cannot do it by our own willpower. God, there's people in this room that are going to break generational curses. There's people in this room who are going to break addiction strongholds that have followed them and their family for years. God, there's people in this room that are going to see their marriages restored and healed, to see their kids walk with you as they grow older. And God, I know that we will not all succeed at 100%, but if we fail one day, God, help us not to quit and to get up and keep trying and get back up. Just get back up again and again. God, would you empower us to continue to do your will. May we never grow weary of doing good. So God, I surrender this word to you. I don't have a way of knowing at this point who it hit or where it hit, but God, I trust you. And I give it to you. And I believe that a large group of people in this room are going to walk out those doors today and be doers of your word. Because like it says in James, simply being hearers of your word, even understanders of your word, actually doesn't mean anything unless we're doers of your word as well. That we're to apply your word to our lives to see real lasting change. So God, we love you, we thank you, and all God's people said.